Well, good morning once again. <clears throat> Here we are back in the video mode, but it looks like soon we're going to be able to come back together. We'll start meeting. Um, I'm sure you got an email by now describing the board meeting that we had up here in Marshfield, and uh, uh, we had that earlier in the week. Um, but we're looking forward to being able to uh, everybody get together and just enjoy some one-on-one -on -one or close fellowship. We can actually see other people. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Uh, if you'd bow your heads with me as, I, uh, as we reach out to the Lord. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning and we look at a story in the Bible, but some of the background that leads to it and what was really being illustrated in this story, I pray. Father, your Holy Spirit can speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, I just pray that you can use me as an instrument, that you'll speak through me, uh, that you give us those eyes to see, the ears to hear, and a heart, Lord, that we can receive. That as we look at this story this morning, we realize this isn't just something that happened. It was really illustrating a much bigger event that was going on behind the scene and behind the years of time leading up to that. And so, Father, bless us now with your Holy Spirit. May it fill our hearts, may it fill our minds. Draw us close to you, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is David, Bathsheba, and the Great Controversy. <clears throat> and so what I want you to do is I want you guys to follow along in your Bibles with me. I want you just to follow right along. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 12, because that's where we're going to start if, if anybody asks you how you can show the great controversy, we're going to go through a few chapters right here in the beginning. Mark these down because this is a really important tool. The great controversy theme is what makes the Bible make sense. Once you, or once I should say not you, once I started reading the Bible through the great controversy lens these stories which seem to be random in some ways are not random at all, that they are there for a specific purpose. They are illustrating the, the, the big issues behind the scenes. And so we're going to start out in Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> it starts out with, a, it says, a great sign appeared in the heavens. I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Let's go over to verse 7. It talks about the woman, she gave birth to a, to a male child. Uh, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that because for, for the sake of time. But verse 7, <clears throat> verse 7 says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. The devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows 
he has a short time. And so we are introduced here, there is a, a war, a battle that was occurring in heaven. The dragon, which we'll find out in verse 9, is, or we found out in verse 9, was that was a devil in Satan. He was cast out. It says that he took a third of the stars of heaven with him. In fact, you can find that earlier. It says, uh, uh, it says in verse 3, it says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them be- to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon it was, as soon as it was born. Now, we're going to go into the Old Testament. When we do that, you'll find out what it's talking about these stars, because these stars are referring to the angelic host. The devil got a third of the angelic host to go with him in his rebellion against God. It's, it seems almost impossible for us to really wrap our mind around that. How could beings that were created perfect end up following a rebel angel that wants to overthrow God? But that's exactly what happened. I want to go ahead and finish reading here because we're going to go through 12, 13, and 14 very briefly, and then we're going to jump into the Old Testament. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so the woman represents a church in in prophecy. This is a prophecy that's going on here. And so he persecutes the church. And friends, listen, you can never forget, the dragon hates the woman. He hates the church. There is nothing more that he wants than to see the church destroyed or to be immobilized and to be non-functional, non-effective. That's his goal. And so if we are in a situation where we are non-effective, we are not doing, we are not fulfilling the gospel commission, we are not doing what we were brought into uh, existence for, then we've got to realize that the dragon is winning. And we've got to turn that around. He said, but the woman was given... Two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And in verse 17 says, and the dragon was enraged. That's what it says in the New King James. The King James says the dragon was wroth with the woman. It's a vile, dire hatred that he has for the church of God. And it says he went to make war with the rest of her offspring or the remnant of her seed in the King James. And then it clarifies why. It says, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Revelation is written in a chiastic structure. And if you're not too familiar with that, I don't have time to really explain the whole thing. But Revelation chapter 12 is the center point of the chiastic structure of Revelation. And it goes out both ways from there. And so here we've got the, the, in Revelation chapter 12, we find out what the issue really is. The war that was in heaven, the rebellion that the devil had against God. Now, in chapter 13, we're introduced to two different beasts. The first beast was one that came up out of the water. The second one that received a deadly wound. The second one came out of the sea. And the second beast would, is going to make an image to that first beast who had the deadly wound that was healed. And in chapter 13, we are introduced to a situation that comes at the end of time called the mark of the beast. Okay? Okay. 
And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because I don't have the time on a, on a video like this. Sometime if we're just around talking, we can sit down and, and flesh this out a little more. But when you get over to chapter 14 now, you got chapter 14. The first thing you're introduced to is the 144,000. This is a group of people that it says, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And so you get this description. And then beginning in verse 6, now we've got the proclamation of the three angels, or how we refer to as the three angels' messages. First angel's message is to fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. We are living in the time of the judgment. And then it goes on to say that we are to worship him who created the heavens, the earth, and the fountains of waters. We are to, create, we are to worship God as the creator. That's the first angel's message. Second angel's message goes on to say that Babylon has fallen. It's a fallen institution. And so the warning is coming out to not, we are supposed to worship God as the creator. But then the second angel says, listen, be careful because Babylon is fallen. And then the third angel's message is a warning against receiving the mark of the beast. And I want to read that. It says, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. Who, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And in verse 12, you see there's a qualification there because you've got this warning against receiving the mark of the beast. You've got the warning against following Babylon. And then you get in verse 12, it says, here's the patience of the saints. Now the saints are the good guys. They're the ones that are reflected in Revelation 14 verses 1 through 5. This is that, that 144,000, the ones that was referred to as the remnant in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, and have the faith of Jesus. And so it's interesting that Revelation chapter 12 or 17 says they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 14 and verse 12 says that they keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. So the commandments are very, very important in this thing. In fact, you Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. It says that, that blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates of the city. And so the commandments keep popping up throughout here. So we can see there's an issue here that deals with the commandments of God. Now, I want you to go back to um, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14. <clears throat> because you go through these chapters of Revelation, Isaiah 14, and then Ezekiel chapter 28, you can show someone then the, the great controversy theme and, and how it started and what it's really, really all about. Revelation chapter, uh, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 14, <clears throat> and beginning in verse 12. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Some translations say morning star. In fact, that's what Lucifer, Lucifer was, it means light bearer or morning star. Uh, you know the only star you see in the morning? It's the only star you can see during the day. It's the sun. 
That's why sun worship has been such a prevalent thing in pagan religions. Um, he said, Lucifer, son of the morning, how you're cut down to the ground, you who did weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, and this is what really began the controversy in heaven. This is what caused that rebellion. And a third of the angelic hosts, don't miss this, a third of the angelic hosts followed him out. He says, for I, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. You see, he wanted his throne. He wanted to be over all of the angelic host. Now, he was able to take a third of them, but he wasn't able to take all of them. I'll also sit on the mount of the congregation. Sometimes we need to have a conversation on that mount of the congregation. It comes from the, from the Hebrew har moed. Yeah, we, we'll talk about that some other time. On the farther sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high. See, Satan wanted to be, or wanted to take the position that could only be, be held by God himself. And he wanted the adoration, he wanted the praise, he wanted the authority that only God had. And so here we're introduced to what was going on in his mind, what he wanted to be able to accomplish. Now go over to Ezekiel chapter 28, and I know I'm going through this quickly. Um, and, but I, I, just, I, I really want to get to the main part of the story, but I want you to give you this background here so that, we can, um, so that this whole story comes full circle and we can make sense of it. Ezekiel chapter 28. <clears throat> now, in Ezekiel chapter 28, you've got this proclamation that goes out against the king of Tyre. And it's all, these, it's all these things, there's warnings about what you have said and what you're going to do. But when you get to verse oh, 11 or 12, then it switches. So instead of being focused just on the king of Tyre himself, now it goes to the power that was in back of him. And in verse 11 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now how many people were in the Eden, the garden of God? You know, there were, only, there were only four beings that I know of that were in the garden of God, in, in the garden of Eden. You had Adam, you had Eve, you had the Lord himself, and you had the serpent. Well, he, this isn't talking about Adam, it isn't talking about Eve, it isn't talking about the Lord, so who's it really talking about? You see, it's that serpent, it's that power that was in back of it. He says, every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the barrel, onyx, and jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day that you were created. Now listen to this, verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I'll spend a little bit of time on that. <clears throat> I want to take you back to the, to the sanctuary into the holy of holies, the most holy place, because in that most holy place, there was only one article of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that was covered with gold inside and out. The lid that was on the Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat. It as well was covered with gold. And on there were two golden cherubim, two golden cherubim, two golden angels. In the middle of that, between those two, above the mercy seat, stood what the Bible refers to as the presence. Now the Jews called it the, uh, the Shekinah. You won't find the word Shekinah in the Bible, but they, in the Bible it just refers to it as the presence. I want you to think about this now. This is representing the throne of God. You have God's presence and his mercy seat is, is, is where he is sitting. And on either side of him, there was a golden cherub. 
That was a covering cherub that stood in the presence of God. Now, what was underneath that mercy seat? There was really only one thing. In, well, there was uh, Aaron's rod that budded and a golden pot of matta. But the, the thing that was in there was the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God written on tables of stone. So Lucifer, being a covering cherub, was supposed to be a guardian of the law. He was supposed to be a guardian of the law. But listen to what he says. Should you the anointed cherub who covers? Uh, I establish you. You're on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of the stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till the next word says iniquity was found in you. Now this word iniquity is an interesting word because what it means, it's not just someone who breaks the law. It's someone who is lawless. They, they don't want any law over them at all. And so Lucifer, instead of being a, a guardian of the law, he rejected the authority of the law over him. And that is where he, he, that's where he got himself really into trouble. So as we're reading, we read Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 14, um, Isaiah 14, and especially Ezekiel 28. It's very reasonable for us to conclude that the, the object in question was God's law. You know, we're told that the, the accusation against God by Lucifer was that the angels should not have to be subject to any law, and that if God himself did not have to live by the law, which was not true, then neither should they. You see, in essence, Lucifer wanted to be over everything, including the law of God. I've got a couple of statements here I want to share with you here. The first one is from The Great Controversy, page 582. <clears throat> it says, From the very beginning of the great controversy in heaven... It has been Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. It was to accomplish this that he entered upon his rebellion against the Creator. And though he was cast out of heaven, he has continued the same warfare upon the earth. To deceive men and thus lead them to transgress God's law is the object which he has steadfastly pursued. Whether this be accomplished by casting aside the law altogether or by rejecting one of its precepts, the result will be ultimately the same. He that offends in one point manifests contempt for the whole law. His influence and example are on the side of transgression. He becomes guilty of all, according to James chapter 2 and verse 10. In seeking to cast contempt upon the divine statutes, Satan has perverted the doctrines of the Bible, and errors have thus become incorporated into the faith of thousands who profess to believe the Scriptures. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. Uh, next statement is from First Selected Messages, page 406. Now listen to what he said. Satan had accused God of requiring self-denial of the angels when he, God, knew nothing of what it meant himself and when he would not himself make any sacrifice for others. Can you imagine that? That's quite an accusation. Now listen to what she says. This was the accusation that Satan made against God in heaven, and after the evil one was expelled from heaven, he continually charged the Lord with exacting service which he would not render himself. 
Christ came to the world to meet these false accusations and to reveal the Father. That's why when Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, there was so many misconceptions, and still today there are so many misconceptions as to the character of God. The last statement that I've got here is from the book Desire of Ages, <clears throat> page, 20, or, yeah, page 21. It says, In heaven itself this law was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. He sought to gain control of heavenly beings, to draw them away from their creator, and to win their homage to himself. Therefore, he misrepresented God, attributing to him, to God, the desire for self-exaltation. With his own evil characteristics, he sought to invest the loving creator, and thus he deceived angels, thus he deceived men. He led them to doubt the word of God and to distrust his goodness, because God is a God of justice and terrible majesty. Satan caused them to look upon him as severe and unforgiving. Thus he drew men to join him in rebellion against God, and the night of woe settled down upon the world." And so the issue is the place of, of the law. He accused God of being overbearing, being selfish. Actually, what he was doing is he was attributing to God his own characteristics. First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 4, it says that he who sins transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. That would be in a King James. In the New King James, it says sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's that placing yourself above the law. That the law has no authority in my life. I don't have to follow that. I am a free moral agent. And therefore, the law does not have any bearing to me. Now I want to get into our story here this morning. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 8. Some of you are probably thinking, where in the world is he going with all this? <clears throat> well, hopefully, over the next 30 minutes or so, it'll all come together. <clears throat> if it doesn't, well, I guess you can kick me out. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 8. Story of Samuel, <clears throat> when God delivered the children of Israel, they went in, they possessed the land, and they had judges. God wouldn't allow, have judges there. Samuel was the judge at this time that we're looking at. Samuel's getting to be an old man. He had two sons that he wanted to be able to take his place, and that wasn't the way it was going to be. <clears throat> First uh, Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. You know, <clears throat> Eli was the, the high priest before Samuel came on the scene. In fact, if you remember the story, Hannah prayed for a, for a child, and, and, and Samuel was given to her, and so she gave him to the Lord. That was the, that was the promise she made, God, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. And so Samuel grew up in the household with Eli, and Eli, 
you know, was not a good father. He did not instruct his sons, right? He did not correct them when they needed correction. And so that, that, went, that was, they were going downhill. They did uh, a lot of really, um, really horrible things. They ended up being killed by the Philistines. <clears throat> and then uh, Eli fell over. And because he was heavy, the Bible says, when he fell off his chair, he broke his neck and, and he died. And then Samuel became the leader, the, the judge of Israel. And apparently Samuel didn't learn from Eli's mistakes, and he made the same mistakes with, with his children. And his children did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside and did the things that made the people disgusted. And verse 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. And then they said, Now make us a king to judge us, just like all the nations. Make us a king. See, they didn't have a king. Everybody around them had a king. But what was it that they were really wanting? They wanted to be like the nations around them. You know, friends, I hear that same thing today, and there's dangers in that. There's dangers in it. You know, why do we have to be different? Why do we have to be different? Why can't we just be like all the other churches that are out there? Well, there's a reason for that. We're not supposed to be. We're not supposed to be at all. You know, there, there are these stories that are in the Bible are given to us for very specific reasons, and that is so that we don't make the same mistakes that those who went before us did, and so that we don't have to come under that same, that same type of judgment. Now it says in verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. You know, this is, this is an interesting thing. And Samuel really gives us a, a, a really good example here that when things aren't going the way you want them to go, instead of going out and, and causing a ruckus with everybody, the first thing Samuel does is he drops to his knees and he prays to God and asks for an answer. And brothers and sisters, that should be our response. When anything comes along, our first response should be, that we should be seeking out what God's will is. Not what our ideas are, but what God's will is and, and how that is to be done. So then the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. And then listen to what they said. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. You see, they didn't have a visible king. And not having a visible king, they in their minds were thinking that was making them weak, and weak looking around the nations, all the nations that were observing them, but they had a king. They had a king. They had the king of the universe was their king. And they're rejecting him for an earthly king. You're going to find out this didn't work out the way that they wanted it to. Verse 8, verse 8 says, According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. He's talking to Samuel. He's now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. And he goes through a whole litany of things that were to take place to let them know, you think this is going to be a piece of cake? You haven't seen anything. You don't know what it's like to have an absolute monarch over you dictating everything that you're going to do. Listen to what they said. He will take your sons 
and appoint them for his own chariots and be his horsemen, and some too will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. Now that word servants could be the same as the word slave. So what they're doing is they're putting themselves in slavery, basically, to a king. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us. Now, this is what they want. They want the king to judge them, to go out before us, and to fight our battles. Notice what they want. They want him to judge. They want him to go out before them. And they want him to fight their battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man to his city. And I'm not going to go through every little detail of this, but we know what happened. They got their king. And that way they could be just like the nations around them. And they did. They became just like the nations around them. And Saul was their first king. And just like in heaven, one-third of the angels chose another king rather than the Lord himself. They chose Lucifer, now Satan, to become their king. But they wanted a king so that they could be like the nations uh, around them. Well, Saul started out fairly well. Saul started off well, but he ended up lost. You know, there are very few people that can handle that kind of power. Uh, Absolute power, it says the old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and it's really true. In fact, there are very, very few. In fact, I can only think of one person in the universe that can actually handle absolute power, and that is God himself. Uh, And then David comes on the scene. Now, don't forget, they wanted a king to judge them, to go out before them, and to fight their battles. I want you to go over to 2 Samuel now. Now, when they chose a king, what did he do? He took the place of God to rule over them. Okay, don't forget that. Because that's what really makes this story that we're going to actually, what what we're actually here this morning to study that's what really, in my mind, that's what makes it make sense. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the story of David Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. <clears throat> now, what was it that they wanted him to do? Why did they want a king? They wanted a king to judge them, go out before them, and to fight their battles, right? Let's go to chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. So it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained 
at Jerusalem. He was to judge them, go out before them, and to fight their battles. Where was David? David was sitting at home. David was sitting at home. He wasn't doing what they wanted a king for. Okay? Don't miss that. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to try to make an, uh, an excuse for David that he was just an innocent bystander in all this. But I don't think Bathsheba was an innocent bystander in all this either. I mean, what woman goes up on the rooftop and takes a bath right under the nose of the observing king, knowing where the king is, knowing where his room is, and everything else? So, I mean, there was, I think there's a lot, you know, there, there, there's a little um, uh, intrigue in this, in this story. Well, David sees this beautiful woman, doesn't know who she is. And verse 3 says, So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, he knows she's a married woman. No question in his mind. But, you see, he is the king. And the kings all around there there was no law that could control them. They did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They had absolute control of life and death over anybody in their kingdom. And so, for David began to think on this very same token, and the story bears this out. So he sends for the woman. It says, And David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. Verse 5 says, a woman conceived, and so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now, <clears throat> what's the penalty if a married woman, now where's her husband, by the way? Husband's all fighting the battles that David was supposed to be fighting. Okay, so the husband's not at home at all. And so Bathsheba comes up and she sends word to David. She says, hey, listen, I'm with child. You know, the penalty for adultery, you know what it was? It was death to both the man and the woman. And so David thinks really quickly, you know, I've got to do something. I've got to cover this up. I mean, after all, he's the king. And so I've got to cover this all up. And so then verse 6 says, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house with a gift of food from the king, followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. <clears throat> I think the one thing that David wasn't counting on was the integrity of Uriah. Uh, Uriah was a man of higher, much higher integrity at this point than David himself, the man after God's own heart. David or Uriah would not go down and be with his wife, all of his compatriots, all the men that he was, his fellow soldiers. They were out there fighting in a battle, living out in the fields, and he wasn't going to go home and enjoy himself in the presence of his wife while his people, all his fellow soldiers were out there serving the king. Well, verse 10 says, So they, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to the house, David said to Uriah, Why did you not, or did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And listen to what Uriah tells him. David said, or Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. 
And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. See, that was beneath Uriah's, his, his whole uh, concept of honor and dignity that he would do that. And David said to him, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Isn't that interesting? How the plot thickens on us. You know, David can't get him to do anything when he's sober. And so what he does is he gets Uriah drunk, knowing that alcohol infects. I mean, the first thing it does is it takes a frontal lobe of yours and puts it into neutral. Your whole power of reason, your whole power of conscience is gone, thinking that if I can dull his conscience enough, surely he will overlook this and he'll go down and be with his wife and my sin is going to be covered. And at the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And unfortunately for Uriah, his integrity was his death sentence. Verse 14, it says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And so he writes this letter, gives it to this trusted servant, knowing that Uriah would never open that letter to see what was in it himself. Knowing that he could trust him not to do it. And so he hands Uriah Uriah's death sentence. Now I've got to be honest with you. <clears throat> you can probably tell from the tone of my voice. I've had a hard time with this whole story for a long time. I used to run with a very rough crowd. In fact, I used to run with some bikers. And there were some things you just don't do is you don't mess with somebody else's woman. I mean, you just don't do that. Not if you like your body parts being attached in a place they're supposed to be. There are things that are just, even, even they have their own, their own code of honor, you could say. And that's something you didn't do. When I read this story, I was a young Christian. I read this story reading through this. I go, that, that, is, to me, that was the most despicable thing that I could think of anybody could do. You go and you take someone's wife, she's with child from you, and so you murder her husband to cover your tracks. But what I didn't understand was the great controversy theme that's being played out here. And so Uriah goes back, Joab does as he's instructed. And when, he's, when, he, when Uriah is killed, he sends word back to David. <clears throat> and David then, it says, um, verse 26, says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. <clears throat> David, in his great, generous heart, because his faithful servant was killed in battle, I will take his wife, and I will raise this son Jesus, even as it were my own. 
You see, David even began to think like the monarchs around him, he began to think that he was above the law, that, that he made the law, and that he didn't have to live by the law. And so what was it that made David sin so horrible in the sight of God? You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when we read verse 7, we found that they were rejecting Samuel. They were actually rejecting God, and they wanted someone else to rule over them. You see, the king stood in the place of God in the eyes of the people. The great controversy here is being played out in type before the people. Even the king is subject to the law. If not the law on earth, then he would be the law in heaven. Let's go to verse t- chapter 12 now, because this is where it gets really interesting. Now, David, is, he's on his throne. He's thinking all his tracks are covered. Yeah, Uriah died, but you know, people die in battle. It, it might have happened anyway. He's got Bathsheba, this very beautiful woman. They've got a child together. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. You know, <clears throat> we can hide from each other, but man, we can't hide from God. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, And he tells him a story. He said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had brought, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. The traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so here we've got this story. You've got a rich man with flocks and herds. He's got a lot of things that he can draw from. And then you've got this poor guy. All he has is this one little lamb. And when a, when a traveler came, instead of the rich man taking from his own flock, which he would not have even missed, but he did not want to do that, and so he goes over and takes the only possession that this poor man has, and he dresses it and feeds it to his guest. Verse 5 says, So David's angler was greatly aroused against the man. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, a man who has done this shall surely die. David. David. You know, one of the things I've, I've noticed in, in, in human nature is that usually the first sin that we notice in someone else is the one that we struggle with ourselves. You see, and that's what was happening here with David, and his reaction was so overboard. He goes and murders a man, takes his wife, and, and he doesn't have anything happen to him, but a guy takes a lamb, and David says he's going to die. He wants a guy put to death, really, for taking a lamb? I mean, think of the inequity of this whole thing. And then he says, and not only is he going to be put to death, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And now, you know, when I'm reading these stories in the Bible, I like to just 
imagine I'm a fly on the wall and I'm observing everything that's going on in here. And I'm watching the, the correspondence, the, the dialogue that's going between them. And I, I imagine in my mind the expressions on their faith and everything else. And so here you've got Nathan dressed in his, in his, in his prophet's garb and he tells David this story. David jumps up, he's angry, his face is red and he says, as the Lord lives, this man is going to be put to death. He's going to be after. Restore to that man fourfold of what he took. And then Nathan said to David, you're the man. You know, I, 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 I can see Nathan, his eyes locking right on David, and he takes his finger and puts it right in David's face. He says, you are the man. And then he reiterated everything that he did. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the, what's the next word? The commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And so David said to Nathan, and this is where David is then known as a man after God's own heart. Because when David didn't make any excuse, he didn't try to justify anything that he did, he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Uh, if you don't have anything to do this afternoon, read Psalm 51, because that was David's act of contrition. He, was, he, was, he fully repented of his sin. And Nathan said to David, after he, David said to Nathan, this is verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put your, away your sin. You shall not die. What did he say was supposed to happen to a guy that ate the other man's lamb? supposed to be put to death. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. David was to pay back, or this man was to pay back four times, not only be put to death, but four times. And what happened was David, four of his sons, they were to die. Out of David, that was David's own judgment. The son, the infant son that Bathsheba had, <clears throat> uh, he would die. Amnon raped his half-sister, Tamar, and that was the full sister of Absalom. Absalom killed Amnon. Uh, of course, David, after what David did, and everybody knew what David did by this point, he couldn't go up to Ammon and say, what have you done? This is your sister. How could you do this? See, he, couldn't, he couldn't correct his children after that. David never achieved the, the, the level of respect that he had before this fall. He never attained to the greatness that he had before, never recovered from that fall. And then Absalom killed Amnon. And of course, Absalom rebelled against David. 
And Joab, even though he was instructed not to harm the young man, Joab killed Absalom. And then Adonijah. Adonijah was killed for trying to usurp Solomon after Solomon became king. Four sons, four sons died. He'll have to pay four times. So here we see, because the king, they wanted a king, and David could have presented to the people a, 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 a clearer picture of what God wanted to illustrate. <clears throat> and because he didn't that, he said, you've given the enemies of the Lord a great occasion. You know, as I read this, <clears throat> You know, do we sometimes ask the same thing? Give us a king that we may be like the nations around us. Are we desiring, you know, a different, a different king in our hearts? Or are we wanting the king of kings to be the sole monarch in our lives? You know, are we sometimes maybe no different. Sometimes, you know, it's our own reason. Sometimes it's our own wants and desires that we put there, and we don't want to deny that at all, even though we know it goes against what God's will is. You know, we are never in control of ourselves. I hope you realize that. <clears throat> I've had people get upset with me when I say this, but it's true. We're either under control of one force or the other. We're either under control of the, of the prince of light, the, the, the prince of the, the king of the universe, or we are in control of the prince of darkness. That's our choices. It's one or the other. We're either in control of the Lord Jesus or we're in control of the devil. And as I read this, <clears throat> I think the warning here is very clear to us. And the question that we need to answer is who is really the king of our life? Who is your king today? Who is my king today? I pray, brother, sister, whoever is listening to this, that you won't make the mistakes that David has and choose your will over God's will. Keep God on the throne where he belongs and let us stay where we belong. Who is your king today? Let's pray, Father. Father, until, until I read this through the great controversy theme, this really bothered me, but I see now that this is illustrating really a problem that all of us have. And that is allowing our desires to control whether it pushes you off the throne or not. And so, Father, I pray that as we think on this today, as we let this roll over in our mind today, that, Father, that we would choose you. We don't want another king to, roll, to rule over us. We only want you. So, Father, may we continue to look to you. May we give you our full honor and allegiance. May we be devoted to serving you in spirit and in truth in a way that you would have us to do. Father, bless us. Bless us with your spirit. Continue to guide us. Continue to lead us. 
Draw us to you, I pray. In Jesus' name.